What comes to your mind when you hear the word despair? What images are conjured up in your thinking when those letters roll off your tongue, the word despair? Webster defines this word as a loss of all hope. Despair. It's not a word we like to hear on a sunny March morning. But in our world, we seem to find that this word seems to wreak havoc in our lives. Word despair. As I prepared this message this week, my mind was reeling on what to talk about. When you get to the subject, when you get to a passage like John chapter 6, where we're going to find the disciples in a time of great despair. And I began to think, what, what can I talk about that will link this together with John chapter 6? And it didn't take me long to look to the news and to look and read the newspaper to find examples of heart-wrenching stories of people who are suffering from the loss of hope because of different events that have happened in their lives that have rocked the very foundations of who they are. As I thought of this word despair, my mind went down to Oswego, Illinois, thinking of the five sets of parents who lost their children in a horrific car accident. For those parents that are now watching their children still suffering from issues that came from that. And I thought, despair. Then I heard on WGN Radio on Friday night that another young girl, 17 years old from Oswego, lost her life in a car accident. And I think, despair. Then as I was watching the news this week, I thought of the 20-some individuals who lost their life due to horrific storms that happened in the South. And I listened to the news reports of a school in Enterprise, Alabama, where a tornado hit, and it killed eight high school students. What do we as Christians have to say to respond to something like that? Where's our God in those moments? But then I continued to think about it. And as I was watching the news, I think it was Thursday morning, may have been Friday morning, I woke up to the news in Atlanta, Georgia, a bus full of college baseball team, a college baseball team from Ohio was traveling down to Florida. And in the early hours of the morning, the bus driver thought he was in the left-hand lane but found himself on an elevated ramp. It became a ramp like what we used to use on our bikes. And he jumped with the bus a bridge where another, I believe, six or eight lost their lives. What do we do in these times of despair? I began to think and say, okay, in the comfort of my own home, I I can see those reports, but they don't mean much to me. Oh, they grip my heart a little bit, but they don't seem to bring me to a place of response. I didn't know any of these people. I had heard about them and I had read their stories, but I didn't know them. And then this week, as I was sitting in my office... One of my sales reps came to the office to talk with me. He supplies our catering company with all the food. His name's Carlos. I've known Carlos for 10 years, and he's a friend. 
We're not the best of friends, but we're friends nonetheless. We enjoy spending time together. We'll go every once in a while and grab a bite to eat. And we won't even talk business. We'll just talk about each other. Carlos lives down in Salmanac. He's got three kids, got a wonderful wife. And Carlos was an active man. He was a kickboxer. He enjoyed playing a lot of sports. And uh, about a year ago, Carlos came down with just a regular case of pneumonia. But that pneumonia never got quite taken care of. And it stuck in his lungs. And for that reason, he had been put on oxygen. And they thought it was a temporary thing. And that through some great uh, different medical places and, and things like that, he was seeing a specialist, things would get better. And it was just a trial in Carlos's life. And I prayed with him. I've talked with the Lord about, or talked about the Lord with him. And he's always been real open to that. Carlos came in a little down this week. I said, Carlos, what's going on? He said, Tim, do you got a moment? I didn't come to even talk about the catering. I just want to talk with you about something. He says, I went to my specialist this week, and they said that I've got 20% capacity in my lungs. And if I don't get a double lung transplant, I won't see the end of the year. And I sat there in my chair, and I said, Lord, there is despair. What do I say? What is my response to my friend Carlos? What can I say that is going to impart some ray of hope into this man's life? Now, we've got Sunday school answers. We put our arms around him as Christians and we say, all right, God's with you and, and God gives us medicine and he, he'll take care of that. But that doesn't work. And that wouldn't work for my friend Carlos. Nor is it going to work for people that bury their children. So the question we have to ask is, what is the Christian's response to this word, despair? But you know what? Before we even learn how to respond to it as, as Christians with our friends and our family, we have to ask the question, what is our response Job said that man is born to trouble. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. So what's our response? What is our response as Christians? Before we go and tell anybody else about our response, what is ours going to be? You know, this word despair doesn't just impact people we know, but it's impacting people within this congregation. There are many people here today who are suffering this thing called despair. Now, it's a common ailment. It's a common thing that we have. But I will assure you that your despair that you may be facing today may be different than anybody else's. I began to think about what causes despair, and I thought financial issues we have in our church, within the people of this church, are struggling to make it, and it brings them to a place of despair. I thought of many of the couples that are dealing with marital problems in our church. It's happening. Don't think it's not. There are people that are hurting in their marriages right now. I know of some that are struggling with problems with their kids. And it brings them to a place of losing hope that their kids will ever turn out the way they want them to. I know we've got people that are struggling with a myriad of medical problems. And it doesn't ever seem like it's going to get better. There's problems at work. We've, we've had a couple people this week that just lost their job. And that brings them to a place of losing hope. We have people in our congregation, we don't hear about this very often, but we have couples that are trying to have children and are struggling with infertility. We have some in our congregation that have suffered recently from a miscarriage and has brought them to a place of losing hope. Losing hope in life, losing hope in their God. We have people that are suffering from 
despair because of sin's consequences in your life. People are battling depression. People are battling the past. And the devil keeps bringing it up and attacking you. We have people that are in despair because of divorce. People that are in despair because of a loss of a loved one. And yet there are some here in our midst that are saying, Tim, it's one of those messages again. You keep bringing these messages up. And i got to tell you, Tim, I'm okay. I'm fine. Work's fine. My family's fine. There's plenty of money in the bank account. Everything is fine. Why do you keep bringing it up? I want to tell you why I keep bringing these issues up. Because I have learned in my short life on this world that trouble is waiting. And as Christians, we have to be ready. One of the key things, one of the key themes, one of the key criteria I have in my teaching ministry is that the people of Village Bible Church would be taught how to suffer well when times of trials come. Because Jesus says we're going to have problems. He says we're going to suffer persecution. And my desire isn't that you guys will do a great job when everything's going great. That's easy to do. But I want the people of Village Bible Church... Lord forbid that one of us loses our lives, one of us suffers from a horrific, uh, painful disease, one of us suffers from losing the, loves of our, the love of our lives, that in that moment, we won't point our finger at God. We won't doubt God. We won't get angry with God and say, God, you didn't say this was going to happen. I'm out of here. And I'll tell you, there are Christians that do that every day. I'm done I thought it was supposed to be fun, this Christian walk, and I've got nothing but pain. My prayer is that you, the people of God at Village Bible Church, when those trials and troubles come to you, that you will lift your voice and say, Joyful, joyful, we adore you, the God that is so gracious and so full of blessings, even when trials and troubles come. So what is our response? How do we get there, Tim? Even when things are going well, they may be going well today, but how will they go tomorrow? How will they go next week? The answer is found in your Bibles in uh, John chapter 6. So turn there with me, and that's where we'll be for the rest of our time. John chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 14. Now last week we talked about Jesus being the answer to man's desire. And if you haven't been with us, we have been now, I think we're in week 30 in our series in the Gospel of John. And we're finishing it up. We didn't go uh, in a, uh, what do you call it, chronological order. We've been moving around and we've been dealing with three Ds because we have been learning about God in 3D, the person of Jesus Christ. We talked about descriptions of Christ for about 15 weeks. And then we talked about the declarations of Christ. And the I am statements that are recorded in John. And now we're midway through the miracles, the demonstrations of Christ's power. And last week we learned about Jesus feeding the 5,000. A great story. A story where Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and he feeds a multitude of people. And we pulled great application from that last week. But look at what happens right after that. Uh, The feeding of 5,000 happens in the first 13 verses of John 6. But let's look at what it says in John 6, 14. It says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew 
again to a mountain by himself. Verse 16 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake of Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Father God, we have just read your word, the living and active word of God, the word that speaks to us this morning. And Father, I pray as we look to a time when the disciples struggled with great despair, that we would see our answer in the times of greatest weakness, in the times of greatest tragedy, in the times of greatest confusion. Lord, I don't know where each person in this place is at, but Lord, if we've been around this world long enough, we know that we will see times of trouble. So Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. Father, I pray I would not get into the way of what your Spirit has to say to to your people. And that there would be great moving in the hearts of people to respond in a way that brings glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here we are. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. You can see in the scriptures as well. Write this in your outline, which is in your bulletin insert. That this passage or this story can be told or is told by Matthew in Matthew 14 verses 22 through 32, and also in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. So we have two other gospel writers sharing the same story and sharing from a different perspective or a different vantage point. And as I look at this text in John 6, I want to tell you something. You're going to see that the outline is different. I don't have a lot of sub-points like I normally do. I don't want to get deep, if you will, and trying to exegete all that we can from the text. That's a different sermon. But as I put this together, I wanted to pull six very simple attributes of Christ out of our text and to make that the life preserver for us in our times of greatest suffering. Because we see that here the disciples are. They've just been a part of feeding the 5,000. Think about it for a moment. We read that and we don't apply that to our lives. But think about it for a moment. You're one of the disciples. You're living a pretty normal life. You've been hanging around with this teacher named Jesus. A couple thousand, five thousand, in fact, people come, and they're hungry. And Andrew brings this boy with two uh, fish and five loaves, and Jesus just starts mass-producing the stuff. And you go out with your basket, and you just start feeding. And you saw the five loaves, you saw the two fish, and you see Jesus just multiplying it. And they're a part of that miracle. It doesn't say in, the trans- in, in this translation, it doesn't say in any of the gospel writings what the response would, was at that point, but I could see them like a high school basketball team after a huge win. Hey, did you see this? Did you see that? Can you believe it? Man, was that not awesome? This Jesus really is who he says he is. This is awesome. Now, we don't see that, but I don't know how that could not be the response. They were excited about what was going on. And now they hear the clamoring of the people saying, let's make Jesus our king. 
And what we know of the disciples is, man, that's what they were looking for. That Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. And I could see them going, all right, we're going to be a part of this new kingdom. And man, we're the closest to anybody with Jesus. So that means we're going to be involved in this new kingdom. This is going to be great. And yet, what does it say after that? It says they get in a boat, there's a storm, and they find themselves in the middle of a time of despair. Classic case of life, isn't it? Here we are flying high. Everything's going great. Everything's going wonderful. We're high-fiving everybody. We're telling everybody how wonderful everything is and that it can't get any better. And then the phone call comes or the boss asks you to come into your office or you and your child get into a huge fight or an issue of a mental concern comes up and you find yourself going from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. That's what we see in these few short verses with the disciples. They find themselves going from the greatest point in their life, probably up to that point, to fighting for their lives to stop from being consumed by the sea. That's the life of a Christian. Well, how are we to live in those times when we go from the thrill of victory to the agony of feet? There are six things I want to look at. First of all, when despair comes in your life. Now, again, you may be in it right now. Apply these things today. But maybe you're not dealing with it. I'd say, man, put those in your heart and guard them. So when that time comes, you can pull these six things out. Because they are the only things I know that will protect us in our times of despair. Because in our times of despair, we must remember, first of all, the providence of Christ. We must remember the providence of Christ. And you say, okay, Tim, I've heard this word providence before, and it's a place, I believe, in Rhode Island. I mean, is Rhode Island even a state yet? Did they make them a state yet? I'm sorry, Kate. Providence, what does that mean? Quite simply, it means God is in control. He's in control. And one thing we need to remember as Christians, before we go and we start talking to our unsaved friends and neighbors in their times of trouble, is we must lock in what it means of the providence of God. We see that the disciples are told to go and to get into a boat, and we find them being caught by surprise with a storm. So the disciples go, they fed the 5,000, they get into a boat, and they start, and they're going, they say about three and a half miles into it, they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. Didn't see that one coming. Didn't see it happening. Now they're being tossed and turned, and it comes by surprise. The disciples were surprised, but Jesus wasn't. Jesus is never surprised by the trials that you have in your life. Don't ever begin to think that you find yourself in a place of, of uh, trial or trouble and you wonder, well, where's God in that? He's right on his throne, right where he was at when everything was going well. In fact, in both Matthew and Mark, both of them say that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Why would he do that? If he knew there was a storm coming. I could think of the disciples probably hurting. Their arms are hurting. They're rowing in this time. Remember, they're experienced fishermen, many of them. And they face this great storm. And they're wondering, man, what's going on? Why is this happening? Where did this come from? It looked fine, but all of a sudden a storm came about. And they find themselves not being able to turn back around. 
not being able to make any progress, and they were never going to jump out of the boat and try to swim, and they found themselves in a place of great difficulty. But here's the amazing thing. Even though they didn't see this coming, they had just had a great day, great things had happened, their night went completely south on them, Jesus was still on his throne. He was still there. Think about this for a moment. It's impossible for the one who created the oceans and the seas, who has the power to still the water, who has the power to walk on water, for that one, Jesus Christ, who did all those things, to ever be surprised by a storm. He wasn't surprised by it. In fact, in Psalm 107.25, it says, For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. Who lifted high the waves? God did. Who is Jesus? God. Who lifted that storm up? Who caused that storm? But Jesus himself. As I've already said, Christ himself ordered the disciples to go into the boat. He was the one that sent them into it. Now, this passage here isn't telling us that destruction comes when we're out of God's will or trials come when we're out of God's will or we find ourselves sinning. Understand, Jesus ordered them into the boat. They followed Jesus' orders. And where did that lead them? Into a trial. There are some here today, please hear me, you are not suffering trials because you have sinned or you're not suffering trials because you're out of God's will, but you're suffering trials, in fact, because you are in God's will. And he's ordered you into the boat of your trial. And as a result of that, you are suffering all kinds of trouble. And it's because Jesus has told you to be right where you're at. Don't push away trials. That may be exactly where Jesus wants you to be. So you find yourself in a tiny boat in a big storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's so dark you can't see ten feet in front of you. And you find yourself trying to get um, somewhere And the waves around you are pursuing you like a wild animal. Remember, there's no storm that happens without Christ's command. How does that apply to our lives? Very very simply this. There is no trial that is not approved by God before it hits you. Don't think that the devil's sitting there as this professional hockey player with a great slap shot and God is this goalie sitting there trying to keep back all of the pucks that try to go by and each of those pucks representing a trial. And it's not like God the Father's sitting there and he's saying, all right, I'm ready, devil. And then all of a sudden he hears the alarm go off in the back saying, ooh, I missed one. Uh Uh-oh, what's Tim going to do? I didn't see that one coming. But you know that's how we respond as Christians. We don't see it coming and we expect that God didn't see it coming. God saw your trials coming. God sees your despair. He sees it and he knows it and he's been a part of it. He said, it's okay. It's all right. Remember the whole issue with Job? He says, you can do this with Job, but you can't do that. God approves any trial that comes. Now, the devil may be the instigator of that trial, but God is not going to allow something that he doesn't first approve. God is in control. Jesus is, in Colossians chapter 1, not only the creator, 
He was the one that created the sea. The Bible says in Colossians 1, he is the sustainer. He holds all things together, every molecule and every uh, piece of water and uh, part of water that was stirred up that day was sustained by Jesus Christ, Colossians 1 tells us. The weather, pat- weather patterns and all that sustained by Jesus Christ. And because he's the creator and because he's the sustainer, he is the rescuer. That's why. He's the one that came to save us. That's why he's the only one who can come and save us. God knows, listen to me, God knows how much you can handle. I thought of the movie, The Truman Show. Some of you have seen it. It starred Jim Carrey. It came out a couple years ago. And in The Truman Show, we hear about this. And what it is is a big TV show. And in fact, the TV show adopts this baby, this orphan baby, and it makes the whole storyline about his life. And they create this huge set that's this huge city. And he goes around and they film everything he does. And what he finds out is that he's a part of a TV show, that his whole life is nothing but a sham. And that he begins to learn that he's trying to get off this island where they're at, and he can't. And one of the pursuits that he does is he tries to get into the boat, which he's at an early age scared of getting into the water, but he forces himself into the water to try to get to mainland. And the creator of the show says, don't let him go, because at that point, if he gets off the island, the show is done. He'll find out that it's all a big farce. And so what does the guy say? He says, turn the waves up. And you see the guy turn the waves up and it creates this huge wave pool. And there's Truman. He's going back and forth and he keeps fighting. He says, turn it up more. Turn it up more. And he says, we've got to stop. We can't do any more or we'll kill him. So stop. You know, that's a terrible illustration, but that we can use. I want to be very careful. God is not some guy up in a control room. Don't take it too far. But God knows how far he can turn the waves up in our lives. Don't ever ask the question, how much, Lord, are you going to give me? God knows exactly how much you can take. And he'll allow that up to a point. There's a second thing we see once we've looked at the providence of God. Secondly, we see the plans of Christ. Not only do we see the providence of Christ, but we see the plans The question we must ask is, why does Jesus allow us to go through trials? Why does he allow the disciples to face the storm? What does it gain the disciples to suffer like that? Why would you do that, Jesus? Why would you send them out to a boat if you knew and if you were the one controlling the seas? The answer is in what we learn about trials as Christians. There is no greater place for a Christian to grow than in times of trials. You know, there's something special, there's some sort of miracle growth for the spiritual life of a, of a Christian that happens when trials come. I don't know about you, but I have seen, even though I do not like trials in my life, I don't like times of despair in my life, it's amazing as I look back, the trials that I faced last year, while they seemed like they were doing nothing for me but caused me trouble, I look back now and I say, wow, I grew during that time. Wow, I drew, clue, I drew close to God then in that moment a poet once said i walked a mile with pleasure she chatted all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say i walked a mile with sorrow and not a word said she but oh the things i learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me 
What have you learned from the trials and tribulations that you have faced? You know, we have the Christian life all mixed up. We think that the Christian life is all about two H's, health and happiness. And we say that's what it's all about, that I'm healthy and that I'm happy. And you think about it and you say, well, no, that's not, that's not how we believe, Tim. Come on. I say, look at our prayer list. Look at what we pray for. We pray that trials that seem to cramp our style will be taken care of. We pray about illnesses. And there's nothing wrong with praying for those two things. But I think we're missing one more H as an alliterationist. And that is not just for health and not just for happiness, but something we don't... And I don't know the last time I saw it on Keith's prayer list that gets sent out to the church. When was the last time we saw anybody in a time of trial pray for holiness? When was the last time anybody got up and said, Hey, Keith, I want you to pray for my holiness. I'm falling to sin. We don't talk about that. We'll talk about our ailments. We'll talk about how, how uh, you know, we're not happy where we're living. We're not happy with where things are at. Just pray that things will work out better so we're a little more happy. No one prays for holiness. We need to be a people who pray in our times of despair that those would be the times that we are most like Christ. But why does Jesus do that? I didn't answer that question. Why does he allow for trouble to come? Look at, uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter for a moment. 1 Peter. If you're in the book of John, go to your right. You're going to go through a whole bunch of different books. You're going to see things like Corinthians. You're going to see things like uh, Philippians, Colossians. You're going to see some names, the T's, the uh, Thessalonians, the Timothys, the Tituses. Keep going to your right. You can find the book of 1 Peter. Peter answers the question on why these things happen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This is what he says. In this you greatly rejoice. Let's stop there for a moment. What do we greatly rejoice in? Peter, verse 5, talks about the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Why do we rejoice? Not because of what's happening here in the here and now, but what's going to happen in our future. Peter says we've got an inheritance. It's a great one. It's one that's filled with the glory and the presence of Almighty God. And it's going to be a great place when, we be, when we're there. And we're going to experience wonderful things, unspeakable things, the Apostle Paul says, that he saw when he was caught up into heaven. Unspeakable things. That's why we greatly rejoice. But look at what he says. Though now for a little while, the construction there is he reduces the issue. He says, now for a little while. In a little while what? He says, for a little while you may have had to suffer in all kinds of trials. He goes from reducing, saying for a little while, it's not going to happen forever, people, but it's going to happen for a little while. What's going to happen, Peter? He says, all kinds of trials. And he expands it. He says, not just a couple trials, all kinds of trials. The ones that are listed on the back of the carton and those that you've never seen before. Those are what you're going to experience. Why, Peter? He says, these have come, people of Village Bible Church, they have come so that your faith 
Then he shares what this faith, what is it? It's of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. He's saying you are something incredibly special. And that's why there's an inheritance coming, because Christ died on your behalf to give you that inheritance. And he says, why do the trials come to us? So that our faith may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Let's look at that last part. Don't move from that. He says that it will be proved genuine. You know when your faith is proved genuine to your friends and to your family? When you're in times of trial. They don't care where you worship when all the things are going well. Of course you're going to worship. But they're waiting like the people of Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar throws uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire and say, all right, what are you going to do now? And they're sitting there praising the Lord, dancing in the fire. Is that what your friends and family see you doing? Are you proving genuine your faith? Look at what he says, what results. Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. What does that mean? When Jesus is revealed, that means that when we show ourselves to be like Christ. In our times of trial, do they see Jesus who endured the cross, scorned its shame for the joy that was set before him? He did it for the joy that was set before him. Why? Because he knew what that trial and that trouble was going to bring. What we need to realize as Christians is that trials, and the reason why we consider them joy, James says, is because of what it will produce. It produces great things. Jesus sent those men out that night, listen to me, not to sink them, but to strengthen them. Not to drown them, but to deepen their faith. Not to destroy them, but to draw them near. That's true of us as well. Why are you suffering? Why are you suffering this morning? The question you need to ask is, what is Christ's plan in this trial? What is it? God, what do you want me to learn? God, what do you want me to learn in this. It hurts God, but I know you've got something great in store. There's an inheritance that will not spoil or perish. That's waiting for me. And for a little while, I have to experience this trial. Lord, what are you wanting to teach me? Bring me close to you. That's what we need to be praying. Thirdly, we see the prayer of Christ, the prayer of Christ. It says, go back to John chapter six. And in John 6:15 and 16, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, verse 16 says, his disciples went down to the lake. Where's Jesus at when these disciples get caught up in the storm? He's out on a mountain. How convenient. In your time of trial, in the time of the disciples' trial, where's Jesus? He's not around. He reminds me of my big brother, this Jesus. He's around and everything's going great. My brother, when I was younger, I may have shared this story before, I was probably six or seven years old. You guys can pray for my parents after I tell this story. My brother dared me. He said, 20 bucks, Tim. And I've told you, man, those were words to my ears as a kid. He said, uh... Me and my buddies want to see you walk on the frozen ice of the uh, swimming pool. I said, okay, $20? And yeah, Tim. And then they added the caveat, you'll be cool if you do this. I said, all right. You can keep the 20 bucks. As long as I'm cool in your eyes, I'll do it. I get up there, little guy in my snowsuit, and I'm walking. And I wasn't the lightest of six-year-olds or seven-year-olds. I don't know. I may have been eight or nine. I don't know how old I was. <laughs> 
And I remember seeing the crack form. And it came, and I remember falling in. My arms caught, by the grace of God, my arms caught the ice. And I'm sitting there like a little buoy, (laughs) buoying up and down. My brother, in a moment, you know what he does? You would think he would go and grab something to pull his heavyset little brother out of the water. He says, oh, let's go play at the neighbor's house and takes off. I wonder if that's what the disciples were thinking. When I need you the most, you're somewhere else. I got out of there and I got a bigger beating from my mom for being too stupid to listen to my brother than my brother did. It's the way that the middle child syndrome is. tell my parents it's one of the reasons why God took Chris home early to be in heaven because I didn't have a chance to be bigger than him to deal with some of those demons that he brought into my life. But here are the disciples being pummeled by a storm and Jesus isn't around. Let me ask you a question. In your times of trial, have you asked that question before? Where are you, Jesus? Here I am struggling. Here I am fighting for my life. And you thought it was good to go sit on some mountaintop and pray. What's that about? Come on. I know I've asked those questions. What's Jesus doing on that mountain? In Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, it says, After telling of the same situation, after he had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. To pray. It says, when evening came, he was there alone. What a time to pray. Couldn't he have just prayed in the boat with the disciples? Wouldn't that have been just as fine? Jesus, just hang out there. This is something I never saw before. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. I'll tell you, I never knew this. If you knew it, you're smarter than I am. Or you've read more of the Bible than I have. Because I never saw this or never put it together with this uh, part of the miracle in John chapter 6. Why is Jesus on the mountain? What's he doing there? Well, he's praying. Mark chapter 6, verse 46 tells us that. I'm hearing you turning. You're getting there. Mark chapter 6. It says, After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Verse 47 says, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. Look at what verse 48 says. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against him. One of the commentaries, one of my favorite commentaries said, Jesus went to pray, but he also went to a place that in his humanity he would be able to see the disciples in their trial. What better place could he be? The Sea of Galilee, surrounded by uh, uh, mountains and hills. He sits on the side of a mountain and he can see clearly. Let me tell you something. There's a couple of things we learn very quickly from this. First of all, the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Jesus went up to pray knowing that his friends were in trouble. There's the priority and the pattern that we see. Because he makes it a priority to pray and then he shows us the pattern by praying. Why is that a pattern? Because when you see your friends in troubled times, you know what we're so quick to do here in America? Pull out our wallets and say, how can I help you? Or we begin to say, what can I do? You know what? Jesus didn't ask that question. He first went and prayed. The first thing we need to do as a church, when someone comes up and says, I'm struggling in a time of great despair, isn't to say, well, what can Tim all do for you? 
Our thing should be to get on our knees and say, what is God going to do for you? Now, I'm not saying we stop with the prayer. We have to be the hands and feet of Jesus. But Jesus first prays, and then he goes and he helps. What is he praying for? I believe he's praying that in this trial, that first of all, God, his Father, would receive glory. That's what we should be praying for. In the trial of our friends' and family's lives, the first thing we should pray is not get them out of the frying pan, Jesus, as quickly as possible, but God the Father, that you would receive glory. Number one. Number two, I think that they prayed that the, he prayed that this would be one of those times as he's praying, saying, Lord, let them be drawn to you. Let them be drawn to you. I think it's something else he might have been praying for. Again, this is all speculation. But I believe another thing he might have been praying that they would show them, they would be brotherly, uh, show brotherly kindness. We see throughout uh, the prayer in John 17 that Jesus prays that we'd be unified. And I'm wondering if Jesus may have been praying that they would be unified. He didn't go and take care of it. He first prayed. But why would Jesus just seemingly sit there and pray? Why wouldn't he deal with the problem? I think there's something inherent in us as human beings that I've learned from my four-year-old Noah. Noah finds himself in times of trouble, and he doesn't think his mommy and daddy know that he's in trouble. A couple of weeks ago, I saw Noah dump about a cup of milk. To try to fix it, Noah goes and pulls all the paper towels off the counter, goes and gets mom's best towels, and he begins to start wiping it up. And as he's doing that, he spills three or four other things, including the jug of milk, onto the floor. Now, why wouldn't he just come and say, Dad, I screwed up. Come and help me. He wants to fix it on his own. And in trying to fix it on his own, he creates himself even more messes. You know, that's what we do as human beings. Times of trial and trouble come. We try to fix them on our own. Instead of asking our Heavenly Father and, and God the Son to come and to take care of them, we keep working on them. And we get frustrated and more frustrated. Finally, out of our frustration, we say, I can't do it. I think that's what Jesus was allowing the disciples to do. In the futility of their trying to get to the other side of the sea, he says, I'm going to let them simmer for a while so that when I do come, they know that it wasn't, oh, you came too quickly. I had this under control, Jesus. We could have gotten over to the other side of the sea on our own, but that when Jesus showed up, they would be like, thank you. We were lost without you. That's why Jesus sometimes delays it isn't because he doesn't love you it's because he wants to allow you to struggle for a little while so that you'll know that he in fact is able to do more than we could ever ask for or imagine he intercedes by praying for them hebrews seven twenty five says therefore he is able speaking of jesus to save us completely those who have come to god through him because listen jesus always lives this is his job to intercede for them. Whether you know it or not, Jesus is interceding for you right now. The Bible says even the Spirit of God is groaning right now, a language we don't even understand, speaking to the Father. He's groaning. Utterances that are happening. The hymn writer was right when he said that his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. We've seen the prayer of Christ. Now we see the presence of Christ. John 6, 19, when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. At the moment that things get their worst, the storm's moving, they're tired, maybe they're thinking about giving up, Jesus shows up. 
At the right time, Jesus makes his presence known. Understand that. Jesus will show up in your trial when it's right. Not a second later, not a second sooner, when it's just right. And we see him walk out to the disciples. We know that he didn't come soon enough in their opinion. But Jesus does this for a reason. I could, I could just imagine, I know I've shared a lot of speculation with you, so understand this is Tim asking the question of the text. I wonder if the disciples were sitting there as they're trying to deal with this storm saying, Jesus takes care of everybody else. He fed those stinking heathens on the mountainside, those 5,000. We're his buddies. Where is he at in our time of need? I don't know about you, but I've thought that before. Trials have come. I say, hey, I'm serving you, Jesus. Why are you making me suffer so much? Why don't you deal with those nominal Christians that don't do anything? That don't act one way on Sunday and act another way. Why don't you give them some heat? Why are you giving it to me? I wonder if the disciples were thinking that. I know if I was a disciple in that moment, those would have been what I would have been sharing. They would have said, Tim, the 13th apostle, spoke out foolishly and said... In fact, John would say, we can't even say what he said because it's so stupid that he... I mean, there he goes again, spewing his garbage. But you know, I looked and I found a passage in Isaiah 30 that reminds me something so important. Isaiah 30, 18. Why does it take Jesus so long? Isaiah 13. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Jesus wants to show you grace. Listen to what it says. He longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. When we think that God's compassion should come, it doesn't. It's because Jesus is sitting up in the heavenly saying, I will get there when it's right. You know, that's what happened in Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, when the time had fully come, when it was the perfect time, Jesus was born of a woman under the law that he may redeem those under the law at the right time he wants to be gracious i can't tell you why it seems that jesus's answer and his presence seems far away but understand he's praying he's interceding and he's watching you fifthly next we see the power of christ verse 19 when they had rowed three or three and a half miles they saw jesus approaching the boat walking on the water walking on the water there's the miracle he's walking on the water That's where the power of Christ is seen. Here's a great truth that is seen in this aspect. Here are the disciples fighting to stay afloat in their trial. They find themselves failing amidst all their toiling. Yet Jesus has the power not only to rise above the problem, but listen, to use the problem that was beating them up as a floor. Meaning, the thing that was about to drown them, Jesus is standing on top of it saying, no problem, just having a stroll. Just hanging out, just enjoying myself. What a beautiful night, isn't it? I've created a wonderful night for us. Walking out. One of the things we should do as Christians is to give our trials to Jesus. Not because we think we can handle it. Maybe he can do a little better job. But because in our trying to fix our trials, we will fail and we will drown. But Jesus will use our trials as his floor. He'll say, I'll use them. Here we are gasping for air, getting mouthfuls of water. And we look to Jesus. And what is he doing? He's walking. It doesn't say he's toiling. doesn't mean he's teetering. It says he's walking. Matthew tells us this is where Peter cries out to Jesus. He says, I want to get out in the boat, out of the boat. I want to walk on water with you. I want to come to you, Jesus. Peter knew something. 
We give Peter a hard time because when he walks out on the boat, his faith begins to reduce and he begins to fall into the water. But you've got to think about this for a moment. Peter says, I want to be out with you, Jesus. Let me come to you, Jesus. Peter learns something that we need to learn. That the boat of our self-reliance is not where we want to be in the storm. Instead of being in the boat, it's better to be on the waves with Jesus than in the boat by ourselves. And Peter says, I want to get as close to Jesus in my time of trial. Let me get there. That's what we need to be doing. We need to recognize, like Peter does, that we can't do it on our own. Finally, we see the importance of the purposes of Christ. Remembering the purposes of Christ. The question must be asked, why the storm? And what does it do in teaching the disciples? And what does Jesus walking on water do for the disciples? Turn in your Bibles one final time to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to land this plane and finish our service. Mark chapter 6, verse 51 and 52. This is what he says. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely Amazed. Look at what verse 52 says. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What does verse 52 mean? They had not understood. The idea here is that they had forgotten the power of Christ in dealing with our troubles. Now they had forgotten quite quickly. Short term amnesia. That afternoon, they had seen Jesus feed 5,000, and in their time of trial, the Bible says, Mark says, hey, we forgot about the loaves. We forgot about the miracle in the afternoon. And as a result of that, we found ourselves falling into despair. They had forgotten that Jesus could surely meet them in their greatest hour of need. How we need to hear that this morning. Have you forgotten the goodness of Christ? Have you forgotten how many times... Christ has come in on your behalf and met your needs. Have you forgotten so quickly that Christ has done some marvelous things within our midst that when we come and that phone call comes or that trial comes, that we think that Jesus isn't going to meet our needs? I have short-term amnesia. I don't know about you. But every time a trial comes, even though, and I speak this publicly, that Christ has met my needs and my family's needs for as long as I can remember, that as soon as tomorrow comes and that trial comes in my life, you know what my first thought is? What am I going to do to fix it? Come on, Tim. Jesus has fixed it all up for me before. Why won't he fix it now? And they say their hearts were hardened. Is there some hardening in our hearts this morning? One of the questions we must ask is, in this trial, Jesus, what is the purpose? What was the purpose of bringing that storm? Is to deepen their faith. But look at what, you may have closed your Bible already, and that's okay. The text says, in verse 21 of John 6, that they took him into the boat. So what it says, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. It's amazing. There's so many miracles in this one miracle. We say, what's this the miracle of Jesus walking on the water? Well, you've got Jesus bringing forth the storm. You've got the walking on the water. And then you've got this amazing transportation that happens. Okay, they go from being three and a half miles out, John says, to immediately as Jesus gets into the boat, they hit the sand of the shore. Amazing. 
What does that tell us this morning? It tells us that when we invite Jesus into our trials, that we'll get to where Jesus wants us to be. That answer isn't that when we get and invite Jesus in, that it's going to bring our lost loved one back to us. It's not saying that when we invite Jesus that all our finances are all going to be worked up. But I will tell you, they got where they were heading. And I will tell you that when you invite Jesus into the boat of your life and in the trials, that when you do that, Jesus will get you where he wanted you. And he'll move you in that way. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And I thank you for your word in John 6. And Father, I pray right now for those that are struggling with despair. And Lord, we have shared six attributes of you this morning that should be a rock, should be the ballast in our boats when those troubles come. But Lord, one thing we didn't talk about was our response to our friends and our neighbors. And Lord, we see simply this in the text and we praise you for it. Lord, you've taught us that when we find trials or we encounter people with trials, that our job is to point them to Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who are pointed to you in our times of trouble. And that when that neighbor or friend comes, that we will point them to you. That you are in control. That you love us. That you're watching out for us. That you're interceding for us. That you have a purpose and a plan for us. And that we would profess that boldly and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Father, I pray for those that have come that have never experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray before they leave this place that they would stop and ask the question, in my time of despair, where will I turn? And Father, whether it's they ask the person next to them or the person that brought them or the people at the Welcome Center or me at the back door as they leave, Father, they would not leave this place without knowing that in their greatest despair that you alone are our answer. And Father, that someone new today would come into the family of God as you draw them to yourself. Father, I pray for us that are believers in this place. And I pray we'd be bold. Father, I pray that I would be bold to my friend Carlos. That I would not just give pleasantries, but I would give the word of God that can only change his life. And Father, it may not change his lung condition, but it will change his eternal condition. And Father, I pray that I would be bold in that. Father, I pray for the people in this place that we would be bold that we would open the word when we see our friends crying, when we see our family struggling, that we would not speak of ourselves, but we would speak of Christ who calms the sea and walks on water, who raises the dead and gives, blind, uh, gives sight to the blind, that that's who we would proclaim. Let us be a church that points to Jesus when the world suffers trials of many kinds. We love you that you're in control. We love you that you are being brought glory in our times of greatest weakness. And I pray that we would be made holy when trouble comes. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.